Welcome to Beth the Coon. You know, and I am so happy to be back with you after my family and I took a trip to Oklahoma to see the rest of our family. It was a great, refreshing trip. We made some good memories, got some good stories, too, that I'll share with you personally when I see you. Um, but we're, we're glad to be back. I'm also very thankful to Mr. Steve Meeks and uh, Mr. Grant Luton for having subbed and filled in for me. For the past couple of weeks, you know, we are so blessed to know some really great men of faith who know how to teach from God's Word, um, and, and also so many who are in our own congregation who can do the same. And I will be calling on you in the coming months and year to do that. So, men, prepare yourselves for that. Uh, so let's make sure to be grateful and show gratitude to God and to Steve and Grant, if you have the chance, and you think of it, uh, and thanking them for, for what they've done and how they've helped us out, and helped me out, too. Um, <clears throat> while we were away, we heard, too, about the Hanukkah party you all had, um, and, you know, I, I talked to David and Sherry, I think, in the midst of it, or just beforehand, telling them that I wished we could have been there, too, and, and been in two places at once, uh, so we could be there with you, but it wasn't meant to be. But we weren't sad, we were encouraged, because seeing how much effort and excitement was put into it, and how it was just a blessing to you all, just made us so proud to be a part of this body, and we're so very proud of you. Just want you to know. So, all right, enough about that. This week, uh, we are continuing our study of Yehoshua, Joshua, in chapter 5. It's a short chapter, but worth looking at closely, so let's get started by reading it aloud together. Joshua 5. And I'll be reading from the Reuben Edition Art Scroll um, uh, uh, version, and then my notes I have as New American Standard, just in case you're wondering. So I'll read this aloud first. Joshua 5. It happened when that when all the Amorite kings who were on the western side of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings who were by the sea heard that God had dried up the Jordan's waters for the sake of the children of Israel until they had crossed, their hearts melted, and there was no longer spirit within them because of the spirit or because of the children of Israel. At that time, Adonai said to Joshua, Make sharp knives for yourself and circumcised the children of Israel again a second time. So Joshua made sharp knives for himself, and circumcised the children of Israel at Gibeath Ha'aralot, the hill of the foreskins. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. The entire people that had gone forth from Egypt, the males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way, after they went forth from Egypt. All the people that went forth were circumcised, But all the people that were born in the wilderness on the way, after they went forth from Egypt, were not circumcised, because for forty years the children of Israel journeyed in the wilderness until the demise of the entire nation, the men of war, who went forth from Egypt and had not heeded the voice of God, about whom God had sworn not to show them the land that God had sworn to their forefathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. But he raised their children in their stead. Them Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised since they did not circumcise them on the way. 
When all the nation had finished being circumcised, they remained in their place in the camp until they had recuperated. God said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the disgrace of Egypt from upon you. He named that place Gilgal to this day. The children of Israel encamped at Gilgal and performed the Pesach offering on the 14th day of the month in the evening in the plains of Jericho. They ate from the aged grain of the land on the day after the Pesach offering, matzo and roasted grain on this very day. The manna was depleted the following day when they ate from the aged grain of the land. There was no longer any manna for the children of Israel. They ate from the grain of the land of Canaan that year. It happened that when Joshua was in Jericho, that he raised his eyes and saw, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went toward him and said to him, Are you with us or with our enemies? He said, No, for I am the commander of God's legion. Now I have come. Joshua fell before him to the ground and prostrated himself and said to him, What does my master say to his servant? The commander of God's legion said to Joshua, Remove your shoes from upon your foot, for the place upon which you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Okay. Interesting chapter. Now let's go back through, starting in verse 1, and I want to pull out a few things that I learned in my study over the past couple weeks. All right, now I'll be reading again through these verses, but this time from the New American Standard Bible, uh, just in case there's a little bit of a difference in language that you that you detect. So verse 1. Now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted, and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. Okay, last, last time we talked about the, the miracle of the water, <clears throat> we compared it to the Red Sea crossing um, and how, how it was pictured differently, how the Red Sea was two big walls of water uh, and it was more of a sign for the Israelites than it was for uh, the Egyptians. Even though the Egyptians saw it, they still pursued the Israelites into it um, as if it were um, not a big deal because they were still after them. So it was something that was for the Israelites. So two walls of water on the side. The, Red, uh, the, the Jordan River crossing was different in that, in that instead of two walls of water on each side, it was two masses of people crossing over, uh, split in half by the Ark of the Covenant. And then way, way upstream was where the miracle of the water being stopped was occurring. And that you could picture as a, as a column of water that kept going up and up and up as the water came downstream, it just rose and rose and rose in a pillar, in a, in a, in a single column. What I, didn't, what I didn't really touch on last time was the, the necessity of the miracles for the people or the children of Israel in their development. When coming out of Egypt, they were an infant nation. They were young in their faith and understanding. And so a great miracle was something that was, that was essential for them to see and to witness, uh, to set a precedent between, a precedent of how the relationship was between them and their God, right? So it was very important for them to see and experience 
and to talk about and to pass down from generation to generation. And we do so, of course, during uh, Pesach. The miracle of the water of the Jordan River, though, it wasn't necessary for them to see the water, the big column of water, although they probably would have been able to see it from that far because the water would have been really, really tall, really high. They would have seen it from a distance. In their development, in their maturity, though, they didn't need to see a great, great miracle here. They were, they were not quite grown up yet. They were just entering the land, but they were mature enough that they didn't need to see the same kind of miracle. So who was this miracle for? Well, this miracle was for the people in Canaan, in the Amorites, the, the Amorite kingdoms, the Canaanite kingdoms, so that they would be filled with fear and dread of the Israelites. Um, and the reason why, and, and I'll get into this a little bit here in a minute too, the, the men of war who were left, the new men of war, were about to be circumcised. And they were going to need some time to recuperate. But uh, it's hard to plan for that if you're entering into the enemy territory. How do you do that, right? You're going to wound your men uh, right out the gate. So, so there was, this is a picture into how God orchestrates and plans things for the benefit of his people, things that his people may not even be aware of, behind the scenes, elsewhere, throughout the kingdom, or whatever the case may be. This is a picture into how God works so that his people are protected when he has called them to do something that makes them vulnerable. So that's important. All right, going on to verse 2. <clears throat> At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. So it says here that Joshua was basically alone to make the flint knives. Make for yourself flint knives, or knives sharpened with flint stones. Clearly he needed help doing this, uh, but this pictures for us, again, uh, what the work of Yeshua is uh, in our lives, and that he is the one, solely the one, uh, who circumcises our hearts. Joshua was called to be the one to circumcise the people, uh, but he couldn't have done this, of course, in, in one day because um, there was not much time between when they arrived in the land and when they were going to observe Passover. And they had to be circumcised before they did that. So there was only three, three four days there. Uh, but this, again, the language here is showing us that Joshua, was, Joshua alone was the one who was commanded to do this, just like Yeshua is the one who circumcises our hearts. And there's something interesting here that, that I would lo love for you guys to discuss um, and that this is this is Israel's second circumcision. Okay, it's not obviously not the same people being circumcised twice, but Israel as as a people is now being circumcised a second time, just after they have been immersed a second time. We talked a little bit last uh, last time I taught about how the Red Sea crossing was a first immersion, you could call, and the Jordan River crossing was a second immersion, you could call. We in our lives go through two immersions. One, when we're born, we pass through water. That is our first immersion, our first baptism. Our second is when we come to faith in Messiah and we enter into the kingdom. Here is the second immersion followed by the second circumcision. So I want you guys to discuss and talk about how these are related, 
how that plays out in the progression of uh, the, the, the life of a person of faith uh, and the life of Israel as well. So there's some, there's some interesting things there that I think you could chew on. So that's your task. Moving on to verse 3. So Joshua made himself flint knives, or knives sharpened by flint, and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeat Ha'aralot, which translates as uh, the hill of foreskins. Uh, and I just want to say, um, and this is just kind of funny, that that's a terrible pla- name place. <laughs> terrible place for a name. I do not want to be from that place, uh, just, just so you know. But anyway, um, I know that's important, and you know, uh, but I just think it's funny. So moving on <laughs> to verse 4. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. I'm sure you have known people in your life, maybe you have been one yourself, who consider themselves a soldier for the cause, soldier for Christ, someone who was a man of war, someone who was ready to fight, right? Being a man of war is no guarantee of spiritual maturity. Uh, it doesn't guarantee that one is fit to enter the kingdom, even. And so I think what we're to take from this is that you may be willing to fight for the cause and even die for it, but the work is not done in you, even if you are committed to fighting for it. That is not the end goal to be a man of war. Um, And we see here that even the men of war, even the ones who are going to fight and die for Israel or even for God, uh, may not necessarily be the kind of people who can enter into the kingdom. So just just something to consider there. And again, I'm sure we could probably picture some people in our lives or in our uh, our congregations who are very much like that, but that there's there's something missing, something very important some kind of wisdom and maturity uh, and, and ability to see into the spiritual realm, things that are real and true um, and that bring life, and that it's not all about fighting. So, Moving on, verse 5. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. Verse 6. For the sons, <coughs> for the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness, Now, remember, of course, the number 40 is very important. Number 40 is is a number of transition, of transformation. And so 40 years in the wilderness is is meant to teach us something about what the purpose of the wilderness is. And and, and it's reminding us this here in in verse 6, that it was 40 years. For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the, which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is a lesson we've taught before. This is something I've said before, Grant said before, and you'll, you'll never stop hearing it. But the wilderness, when you enter into the wilderness, you must expect something of you to die. It's meant to die there. And something new of you is to be born there. 
that new part of you is what will allow you to continue on into the land, into the kingdom. So a death and a birth is always, are, are always to be anticipated in your wildernesses. Okay? Got it? All right. Verse 7. Their children whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them along the way. Verse 8. Now when they had finished circumcising all the nation, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Okay, so the healing was going to take three days. Remember back in the first verse, no enemy had the stomach to face Israel. This is why. They had just entered enemy territory. The last thing you want to do after entering enemy territory is to wound your men and then take time to recuperate before celebrating a feast. Like, that's, like, that's a terrible idea if you're going to war. Unless, of course, this is an enemy territory that God has promised to give you and he instructed you to do this. You do it. But this is why. Verse 9. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, so that the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Okay, so the disgrace of Egypt. Is that what it says in this translation? The reproach of Egypt. The reproach of Egypt, the disgrace of Egypt, the word there also translates into the taunting of Egypt. Um, The Egyptians were known to have taunted the uncircumcised Israelites. Circumcision was, after all, the sign of the covenant between God and Israel. It's what identified them as a holy people. And so when they weren't circumcised, it was was, uh, shameful to, to the Jewish people. And an embarrassment. And the Egyptians were known to have taunted them, say, hey, look, see, there's nothing, there's no difference between you and us. We are also not circumcised. So that, that's what I believe is meant here by this disgrace, this reproach, this taunting being removed. Like they are now, they are now the people God uh, wants them to be in covenant with. Verse 10. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month, on the desert plains of Jericho. Okay, so back in the last chapter, they crossed over on the 10th of Nisan, recuperated for three days after their circumcision, and then observed the Passover on the 14th. So this is the days, these are the days that, that had just happened. So it was just a few days. Verse 11, on the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. So, they were, they were still eating from the manna. They still had some of that left. But the produce that they were eating now was not produce that they had planted and harvested themselves. This was produce that was there. Uh, the words, I don't remember the Hebrew, but the way, it's, the, way it is, uh, the way it is translated here in the art scroll. Let me see if I can find it. Verse 11. Uh, they ate from the aged grain of the land. The aged grain is usually the, the grain of last year's harvest. So this is grain that was already there, already provided for them. So much like the manna, it was there for them. It was given to them. So they'd been eating manna, what was been provided to them miraculously by God. And now they were transitioning to the produce of the land by first eating of the produce that was already there that they did nothing to do to grow. They ate that. And then afterward, the manna stopped. They still had some manna left uh, that would last them for a couple more weeks. 
but then they started to plant and harvest the land that was there. And in that year, in that calendar years, or, or that, that those seasons, they actually started to eat from the land. Um, verse 12. The manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. They, they no longer had the manna. This was another indication of their, of their maturity, of their progression into spiritual adulthood or maybe spiritual adolescence. I'm, I'm not sure what the correlation would be there. David might be able to, to tell us that. Uh, but, uh, so they didn't have the manna. They didn't need the manna. They, were, they had the land. They had the land now. But the, I think the, the progression here that we're seeing is manna miraculous, Produce of the land that was already there for them, and then produce that they worked for themselves. It was connecting it all so that they remembered that no matter where they got the food, whether it was miraculously given, provided for them when they got there, or toiled and, and received from the land itself, it was all a gift from God. This, I think, is, this, I think, is why it's, it's, it's spelled out in this way, and it's good for us to remember as well. Whatever we receive, God, whatever is provided to us, whether miraculously, as a gift, or through our own hard work, it is all a gift from God. <clears throat> Verse 13. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? All right, so it says here, and now it came about that when Joshua was by Jericho. So again, Joshua is alone. <coughs> he's alone here. Uh, very precarious situation, right? He's alone. He's going up to Jericho, the enemy. Uh, he lifted up his eyes. This is a, 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 a language that denotes that he's praying. He lifted up his eyes. So he was going out, presumably going to, toward Jericho to pray over it and, and uh, pray for victory. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And then he looked, and behold, a man standing opposite him with a sword drawn. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? This, I think, is very important wording. I think he anticipates who this is because of an, ins- uh, uh, an episode that happened earlier in the life of Israel. Um, we can find that in Exodus 23, verses 20 to 23, and I'll read it here. Again, it's Exodus 23, verses 20 to 23. This is God speaking to Moses. Behold, I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. Later on in chapter 33, uh, God again mentions this angel, that, that he will, God uh, threatens to remove his, his guiding presence and to put in, in that place an angel. But Moses pleads with him, no, don't do that. Don't do that yet. So God relents. But here the angel is now. Moses has passed. They're about to go into the land. 
and the angel has now arrived. And, and Joshua knows this. As we see in the next verse, he said, No, rather, <coughs> excuse me. No, rather, I indeed come now as captain of the, of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? So he knows, as we saw back in 20, Exodus 23, If you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Joshua knows this, he knows scripture. So he says, what is my Lord to say to his servant? He is going to obey, he is going to listen, and he does, and we see this. So that was verse 14. Verse 15, the last verse. The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The battle ahead of Joshua much like the battles ahead that we face, are not a physical but a spiritual battle. Joshua not only removed his shoes, but he discarded all thoughts of triumph by mere force alone. He knew that this was, going to not, this was not going to be a battle that, that he could prepare for or that he could win himself, but that he would follow God's lead and allow God and his captain his angel, to conquer Jericho on his behalf. Uh, and it's a good thing he did, uh, as, we, we, as we will see in the coming chapters how, how it plays out. So, again, just to review, the Israelites have come out of the wilderness. Something of them had to die, and something new had to be born in order for them to enter into the land. They were in a, they're in a much more mature place in their faith and their understanding. Uh, and so they don't need to see the miracles in the same way. And uh, uh, all of the enemies, any, any enemy that's in your life, any adversary, any obstacle, understand that God is put there for a purpose. And that whatever it is he needs for you to work through, Trust that he is also working behind the scenes, or behind your scenes anyway, to ensure that, that what he has for you to endure can be done so in a safe way. Uh, and just anticipate the goodness that's coming on the other side. And celebrate. Celebrate what he has done for us, what he's done for you. Never, never forget that. Always remember. So I'd like to, to close this part of... Uh, of our study here with a, a passage from one of my favorite epistles. It's Romans 8, verses 31 to 39, and I'll read it for you now. What then are we to say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare even his own son, but gave up him, but gave him up on behalf of us all. Is it possible that having given us his son, he would not give us everything else too? So who will bring a charge against God's chosen people? Certainly not God. He is the one who causes them to be considered righteous. Who punishes them? Certainly not the Messiah Yeshua, who died and, more than that, has been raised, is at the right hand of God and is actually pleading on our behalf. Who will separate us from the love of Messiah? Trouble? Hardship? Persecution? Hunger? Poverty, danger, war? As the Tanakh puts it, 
For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered sleep or sheep, I'm sorry, to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are super conquerors through the one who has loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor other heavenly rulers, neither what exists nor what is coming, neither powers above nor powers below, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which comes to us through the Messiah, Yeshua, our Lord. Well, I hope this has blessed you uh, as you've watched and that you feel equipped to share what you've learned with others, as I hope you always do uh, coming out of these these lessons. I am uh, encouraged to, to hear reports of how you guys are doing, and, uh, and I want you to know that I'm studying this right alongside you. Um, this has been an exciting study so far. I hope you're excited to see what's ahead. I know I am. So bless you all, and may he make us into the people he wants us to be. Shalom.